The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. If you are just tuning in, we encourage you to go back and listen from episode one. This podcast may contain content that is graphic and disturbing in nature. Listener discretion is advised. Previously on Direct Appeal. I remember saying, my kid, my kid, and I don't really remember much after that. Nobody's entitled to a perfect trial. You're entitled to a fair trial. We've never had guns. We don't know anything about guns. But to do what they said was done to them? If you had told me the appeal would have taken as long as it did, I don't think I would have been here. I was hanging on by a thread. She's convicted. It's a different dynamic than arguing about it before trial. It got to the point I just wanted to come to prison. Let's just get the show up the road. It's not about who's innocent or guilty. It's about a notch in your belt. In some ways, it's so much worse than I can ever describe. And in some ways, it's not nearly as bad as people think. This changes you in a way I don't know that anybody comes back from. This is episode 16, The Best Friends. Last time on Direct Appeal, we aired our second Q&A with Melanie. Thank you to those of you who wrote in. We hope we got your questions answered. For today, first of all, welcome back to Direct Appeal. Hi, Amy. Good to see you. Hello, Megan. And thank you all for your patience as we took time to comb through all your tips, theories, and questions. The next two and final episodes will take a deep dive into the major themes that have emerged over the past few months. This episode will include two additional interviews with people who contacted us with information to share. Um, I'm a little sad it's the last two episodes. Yeah, but there might be more stuff to come. Well, sure. Yeah, but um, I'm kind of, it's like an artist, I think. You feel like your work is not done, and I still feel like there's more that we can do. Yep. But we have taken the time and gone through everything we possibly could get our hands on. So today on this episode, we actually want to focus on the two additional interviews that we did. So the first one is an interview with a woman named Jackie. She was a good friend of Melanie's prior to Melanie's incarceration. Uh, According to Jackie, she met Melanie in nursing school and they became very close. Jackie was in Melanie's wedding and she actually knew both Melanie and Bill very well, which is interesting because up until now, we've really only heard, you know, from someone who knew Melanie and didn't know Bill as well. Um, And the people that we contacted on Bill's side may not have known Melanie as well. So I thought the interview with Jackie was very helpful in shedding light on both Bill and Melanie as people and on their relationship. Jackie tells us a little bit about her relationship with Melanie. She is a complex person. So she and Bill got married. I was one of her bridesmaids. Celine was the maid of honor and Bill's niece was the other bridesmaid. I had never met Celine before that, which is interesting, right? I knew Bill super well during that time. And the oh. fact that she never introduced him to Celine was weird. I mean, the four of us used to hang out, me, my husband, her, and Bill all the time. He worked up in Woodbridge, my husband, and his car got stolen. And so Bill came and picked him up, and he was at their house. And so at the end of the day, you know, I came and picked him up. And, you know, he and Bill were just carrying on. Yeah, he liked Bill. Not Melanie so much. 
none of my mom hated her. My sister hated her. Everybody couldn't stand her. Uh, they thought she was snotty, uh, better than everybody else. Stuck up, I guess you would say. She was a good friend to me. I go back and forth between being really angry at her. Like, I just get so mad. Like, you know, we were good friends. She was going to be living close by. We were going to do stuff. Our kids were about the same ages, you know, like, and I just feel like she, I don't want to say took that away, but. <laughs> so this is my first time hearing this interview. I just want to point out here. Yes. I can't believe you've kept this gem from me for so long. It was interesting. Wow. I had no idea what Jackie was going to say initially. She yeah. contacted us and said that she had information to share and that she was a good friend of Melanie's. So I didn't know. So I find it interesting. Another issue with the car, like what's going on with the McGuire's and their cars. But, you know, that's neither here nor there. <laughs> but hated her. Her family hated her. That's a strong word. I don't know about you, but even if I had a friend growing up that like maybe seemed snotty, I don't think my family would ever say, I hate that person. Right. That seems really strong. Um, and and it, that could be like a mischaracterization by Jackie, or maybe there was something else to this. Or maybe, you know, they just didn't like her. Mm-hmm. She's taking it to the extreme. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I was surprised when she said nobody in my family liked Melanie. Well, they hated Melanie, she said. Right. Did right. she say, and if this comes up later, that's fine. You just tell me to shut up. But did she say for husband? she said her husband liked Bill. She liked Bill. Her Did her husband hate Melanie as well? I think what she said, um, and I think it was Mm -hmm. in that clip, was Melanie, not so much. Got it. Okay. Um, But this is interesting, too, because we don't know a lot of people, again, who have met uh, Melanie and Bill together. And Mm. so her husband really liked Bill. And I asked Jackie, and she said, I really liked him, too. It's nice to hear something positive about Bill, because we haven't had that opportunity, unfortunately. Um, We haven't. No, we haven't heard back from Bill's friends. We'll get to that later. Mm -hmm. But yeah, these people are talking about uh, a relationship where the four of them are spending a lot of time together and they liked him and they hung out and, you know, they knew Bill as a real person. Mm -hmm. Although I should get to I won't I won't, you know, get to too much right now. But Jackie says that she liked Bill, but she does say that he did some mean or bad things. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, she puts that in the proper context later on as well. Mm -hmm. So Jackie describes her relationship. They're really good friends. They hang out, the four of them. She said they talked on the phone every day for hours. She said sometimes four or five hours. Uh Um, They had kids the same age. So they were really tight, according to Jackie, right? So she says that there were definitely red flags, though, in the relationship with Bill. Again, she's saying, yes, I liked Bill. Yes, I liked Melanie. But there were a lot of things that you could probably see as flags pretty quick, pretty quickly, right from the start. A part of me, you know, is sad about that I believed her for so long. I just feel bad about Bill. I mean, he didn't deserve that. I mean, he was a jerk, but so is she. And, you know, she says all the time, I I gave as good as I got. She sure did. I mean, he was mean to her. She was mean to him. But that's just how they were. I'll tell you a story. They had just kind of moved into their last place. I was in the kitchen with her like helping her cook and my husband and her husband were in the living room watching you know some tape vcr bill turned to my husband and he goes watch this melanie the vcr tape is done we need to put a new one in so she had to stop cooking come out into the living room change the tape and when we walked out of there i said i would punch you in the face i said to my husband if you made if you were sitting there doing nothing having a beer with your friend that made me come change the videotape I think that she might have been embarrassed about that. 
Melanie was very big into appearances. When I first met her, I think she had just started dating Bill. The first time that they spent the night together, this is her story. This is her story. She claimed she woke up in the morning and Bill was gone. And so she said, oh, I guess he went out for a run and went back to sleep. And then she woke up again and she realized he was still gone. And so was her ATM card. He had taken her card down to Atlantic City and allegedly pulled 400 bucks off of it and gambled with that money. And I said to her, why are you dating somebody like that? Like I said, complex person. So these are two. Is there any way to confirm this? Maybe a forensic accountant can look into I mean, no, they wouldn't be able to look that far back. I did ask Melanie about the story, and she said, yes, that was what actually happened. And she did. But she's the one who would have told Jackie. So if it didn't happen, I mean. Yes, for sure. For sure. Um, But, you know, she told Jackie the story a long, long time ago. And this was the first night together. That's what she said. (laughs) Yeah, the first night together. Okay. That's very strange. I think it was a little bit strange. The story about them, I was, uh, you know, I, I'm not sure about that one, but the story about the the VCR, right? That one was where Jackie and her husband were present. So mm-hmm. we know we have two people to attest to this. Yeah. And, you know, the story kind of went that Bill was sitting there and they were watching TV and, mm-hmm. you know, he was kind of like, watch, you know, watch what my wife will do. <laughs> and and um, I asked Jackie about, you know, what, what, what did she think about that? Was it as mean as it yeah. seems or? And she said, yeah, it was mean. She said it was mean. And, and I, I asked her, you know, we don't know anything about any physical abuse. I asked Jackie, did you ever see anything physical? And she said, absolutely not. Mm-hmm. And I asked, do you think he was emotionally abusive? And she said, absolutely, yes. So we get a little. I think that's, I'm sorry to interrupt. I think that that story is almost more telling of Melanie than Bill. In what way? The fact that Melanie's this strong woman who doesn't seem to take shit. But when it comes to Bill, it seems like. It's it's just different than from what I've, I don't know her personally, but from the picture that's been painted of her, I would have expected her to respond more like Jackie. Like, I'll fucking punch you in the face if you talk to me like that. I you think know? that's true. Yeah, I agree. I had asked her about Melanie's behavior with Bill, and she said that she felt like Melanie walked on eggshells at time. But to be fair, she also said, I don't know if you heard it in that clip, but she said, yeah, they were both jerks to each other. Yeah. That's just how they were. Mm-hmm. They were. She said Melanie could be every bit as mean to Bill okay. as Bill was to Melanie. Mm-hmm. Although, you know, if I was gauging what she actually had to say, it seemed like she thought Bill sort of had the upper hand, maybe yeah. on meanness mm-hmm. or something of that. So, Or just the upper hand in the relationship to be able to say to your wife, come do this and her do it. I mean... I think you're right. Show some sort of control or upper hand. I I think so. I think we could say that for sure. So, you know, there were flags. They were both mean to each other. They could both be jerks. Jackie also told us the story of, I don't know if you recall, but we briefly discussed the charges that were filed against Bill and Melanie. And Mm -hmm. so this was for perjury earlier on. So Jackie discussed this because she was saying also, geez, you know, talk about early red flags. Mm -hmm. Um, This happened early on and Bill wasn't even at Melanie's nursing graduation. He was actually in jail. Okay, so he was speeding, he got pulled over. This cop, you know, I guess felt bad for him. So drove him home. And, you know, gave him a ride home. And when he showed up for court, I guess, yeah, I, he, Bill had to appear. He goes, it wasn't me. And the cop was like, I remember you. I remember you. I gave you a ride. You were in my car. And he was like, wasn't me. It was 
some one of the roommates at my house took my driver's license and he looks like me and it was really him. And Melanie was going to testify that he was telling the truth to that until I guess they called the restaurant where he worked. And yes, they do wear tuxes there. And yes, he would have been driving and blah, 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 blah. The judge was pissed that he was just going to stand there and lie. And just so they gave him two weeks in jail. And, and Melanie, oh, Melanie had to wear a wire. She wore a wire. Why would you marry somebody who wore a wire around you? But anyway, again, I digress. Like I said, the stories that I knew at the time were what she told me. She was going to say she was at home with him. And they said, we know you weren't. We know you're lying. This is going to, if you get charged with perjury, this is going to preclude you. You won't be able to get your nursing license. And he knew it. And he went to jail for two weeks. All right. My biggest question here is, if I remember correctly, Melanie described this situation very differently. Melanie said that instead of pretending it was um, a roommate who looked like him who had his license, he had told the police, according to Melanie, that she, she was driving or it was that. I think but so. To I, me, this points out some inconsistency between what Melanie's telling us and what she's telling her friends. I thought possibly. so, too, but I think it was my understanding okay. of it and possibly my uh, relate, relating it. She it's, said that she was going to lie for Bill and she said that um, her roommates, yet yeah, the roommates mm-hmm. found out and they called um, the district attorney's office okay. to save Okay, roommates, if you are listening, call us. We need to clear this up. Mm -hmm. So I've actually, I received one email back that addressed this and said, well, yes, this is mostly true, but I think, you know, she was confused about part of it. Okay. So, you know. Like I said, I don't think it's a huge deal. I just think it possibly is the first time I'm hearing inconsistencies in her story, but it could be like the game of telephone, right? When you tell enough people, you know, things get switched around. I think a little, it is so. a telephone game, yeah. to be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, regardless, though, we're talking about again, we've said this. I'm not I'm not going to beat this, you know, beat a dead horse here. But we do know that this is a situation where, you know, Bill was lying in court. I mean, I think it, it I didn't hear this part. And I thought this part was absurd. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, the police officer gave him a ride home. Mm hmm. And, uh, you know, did a decent thing. And then he turns around and says, no, it wasn't me. <laughs> That's, that's that's a little arrogant. It's arrogant, yeah. you know. It's it takes audacity. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think Melanie to say she's going to lie for him is foolish. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, there there are really two foolish actions in this whole yeah. equation here. And so, um, you know, it, Melanie had said that it definitely put a strain on their relationship. And mm-hmm. I'm sure not a big I enough can, strain, apparently. Not a big enough strain, no. But I'm sure I can see why. So mm-hmm. um, this was one of the again another red flag that we're talking about that Jackie gave us. Jackie gave us some other information. I'm going to get to in one second important information that actually bears directly on the crime, which is what we've been looking for. Information, if anyone can say something that is relevant here. But I'd like to say that she also talked about Brad and Melanie a little bit, mm-hmm. and she talked about she didn't know at the time that Melanie was having an affair. Nobody mm. knew. Melanie didn't confide this in any of her friends. And I think maybe possibly one of the reasons Jackie later felt betrayed was because of this. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, finding out that my friend was having this affair that I didn't know about for so long and she was lying. And again, most people who are having affairs don't usually confide them right in a friend because mm-hmm. they're hiding it. Yeah. Um, but she did shed some light also on things that Melanie had told her about her and Brad a little bit and things they did together and, One of the things she said was that 
Brad had a, a poker game, a weekly, or maybe not every week, maybe it was, you know, bi-weekly or mm-hmm. something, but he had a poker game and Bill used to go over and play in the poker game at Brad's house. And I was like a little surprised to hear that. Uh, Melanie had said that they did things together at yeah. times and there were certain events at which they found themselves together. But I was a little surprised to hear that they were a little closer, I think, than perhaps we had realized. So that was, you know, something it doesn't speak very nicely to their character. I don't think it speaks nicely to Brad or Melanie's character, to be honest. Mm -hmm. Um, But she also said that she really did not believe that Melanie and Brad had any immediate plans to be together. So, I mean, but that her opinion on that doesn't mean much considering she didn't know about it. So she doesn't know how involved it was at the time. No, no, she didn't. I Um, guess she's hoping that if there were big plans, she would have known. But well, I don't know, because we're going to get to the point right now um, that Jackie actually called in because she thinks Melanie is guilty and she wanted to provide information. Why? Okay. And so you know, I, I, I was sort of confused and went, oh, OK, so tell us why. You know, this is good, though. I mean, we want to hear information. She said that Melanie and er, that Melanie was at her house almost every day while she was prepping for trial and that they were really close and that Jackie was really, really supportive in the beginning. She said that she believed in her innocence for a very long time. This was her best friend. And she said she believed that despite the fact that her family and friends thought Melanie was obviously guilty. Why did they think that? They just didn't like her or they thought it was ob- they thought yeah. it was obvious. Well, mm-hmm. come on, Jackie, you're just being, you know, mm-hmm. blind because she is your friend. You're not seeing the the big signs or mm-hmm. the, you know, a lot of the evidence. And so I asked Jackie, "Oh, okay. Well, so you believed in her innocence." And, you know, did that change and and when if so, did it change? Like at what point do you say I don't believe you anymore? When somebody's telling you a story as it's happening, of course you think that's real. I I believed her, believed her, believed her uh, until I couldn't anymore. I think the first, you know, when this happened, everybody knew Melanie, everybody in my whole family. You know, she was into my wedding. She was, oh, you know, just around. Everybody knew her for years and years. And when this happened, my mother-in-law, my sister-in-law, my own mother, my everybody, she did this. Of course she did this. Why Why are you so stupid, Jackie? Why? And I'm like, no, that makes sense for Melanie. Like, you know, I could see her going down to move his car. Like, I could see that. You know, and then to find out that there were several trips down there. She told me about one. You know what I mean? All right, let's see. So when did I stop believing her? Um, you know about the letter that was written to the Trentonian, right? From the mob boss. So... She called me and I was pulling into my garage and she was like, go, you've got to go Google, you know, go up to your computer and you've got to see this letter that somebody sent to the Trentonian. So I'm reading it and I have her in my ear, you know, on the phone. And I'm like, she wrote this. Like, you know, the cadence of how somebody talks, like, and especially like a good friend of yours, you know, phrases that they use, you know, that was the first time that I was like, she wrote this letter. So, you know, me being the loyal person that I am, I'm like, okay, well, maybe she wrote it to try to just maybe get the heat off of her in my head. Like, well, you know, maybe she really did do this. There was a few things for me that were 
But when I saw the prescription, that was what sealed it for me. Prescription for the chloral hydrate. That was her handwriting. And the address that she used on it was the address of her first apartment. No, not from the signature. It was written out, chloral hydrate, blah, 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 blah. That was her handwriting. I sat next to her for three years. So when she says she sat next to her for three years, she's talking about in nursing school. Okay. And I saw Amy shaking her head and writing things down. <laughs> so let's dissect this. There's a lot to unpack here. So was there was there not a handwriting analysis done and it was inconclusive, if I recall? Uh, absolutely correct. Okay. Yeah, it was inconclusive. Although, of course, I do, you know, I could think of my best friend's handwriting and I too feel like I'd be able to, better than an expert, I'd be able to pick it out of a lineup. You know what I mean? So I, I understand if you're good friends with someone. The cadence thing, I don't know. I don't know about her knowing that she wrote the letter, the handwriting thing. I, I get that. So I looked at the, I was able to find it online. Um, it's on, you know, either court TV documents mm-hmm. or Murderpedia. I can't remember, but there's the prescription, the chloral hydrate prescription. And it says chloral hydrate, such mm-hmm. and such milligrams. And then there's that signature. Okay. Bradley Miller's signature. Yeah. The signature is not identifiable and nobody could identify yeah. it. And in fact, in court, actually, Brad said that doesn't even look like the way Melanie signed my name because mm-hmm. she used to sign it all mm-hmm. the time. And this was when Brad had cooperated mm-hmm. against her and he said it doesn't look like hers. Okay. Um, handwriting analysis was sort of inconclusive on this issue. Well, what did you think? You know, Melanie's handwriting. Yeah, you know, it's interesting, too. Yeah. I'm glad you said that. Yeah. So I do know Melanie's handwriting because she sometimes writes to me. Yeah, she sent you all sorts of she documents. She sent me that, some yeah. correspondence. Sometimes uh-huh. she types. Yeah. Uh, but other times she's actually handwritten things to me. Yeah. And oh, I, I to see that. I know. I, I, I should have brought it to show you, but um, I couldn't see it. I didn't see that it looked the same. Mm-hmm. It did. It didn't to me. Okay, but that doesn't mean that's anything. Just like the naked eye, it doesn't. Exactly, yeah, okay. naked eye. And that's exactly what I did, though, Amy. I went, mm-hmm. wow, I'm, I'm, I'm the expert now. Yeah. So I took out my, you know, the prescription, and I took out my. You take hand, out your magnifying glass. my handwriting <laughs> letters, and we, I do have a magnifying glass. <laughs> so I took it out and I looked at the two, and I just couldn't tell. You didn't uh, see it. Okay. No, I just that thought, doesn't mean anything either. But I was curious what your initial means reaction absolutely was. nothing. Um, absolutely nothing at all. Okay. So now the second issue is the more interesting one to me um, because I think the chloral hydrate, I just don't think there's any way to say who wrote the prescription um, at this point. And I just don't think anyone's been clear enough. I mean, yes, with mu- maybe much more analysis, there mm-hmm. could be a way, but to date from the trial, from everything I know, it's Jackie's opinion and she could be right. Um, it's Brad's opinion that it wasn't hers. He could be right. I don't know. I also don't think it matters that much. I don't think that prescription is integral to the case as much as some other pieces of evidence. It's really interesting you say that because I was going to cover that later. And Sorry. I think, no, I think we we should. It's um, one of the pieces of evidence that I'm not sure even relates to the crime. I think there's an argument to be made that it could be totally independent yep. of this crime. So exactly. I'm going to say that um, the chloral hydrate, maybe it matters, maybe it doesn't. Yep. We can't form a conclusion on this. Um, I thought the interesting part, like you said, was she said that she recognized that was the mob letter. Remember the the, the mm. letter that was written to the press, to the prosecutor? And it was, you know, sort of, uh, uh, you know, that you think Melanie did mm-hmm. this, but you guys are wrong. And here's why. Jackie said Melanie called her and said, you have to read this letter that someone sent in and was published. And Jackie said when she was reading it, she was like, oh, I think Melanie wrote this. Mm -hmm. That's the cadence with which she speaks. So 
we were hoping to actually have a scientific conclusion on this. Unfortunately, we do not. So the forensic linguist in this case, if you recall, Carol Chasky was the linguist and mm-hmm. she testified on behalf of Melanie. And what she said was basically that it's impossible for the lay person to tell, even when you think you know the way yeah. someone speaks. It's it, There's a much more scientific process and um, anything to date could not say conclusively either way. And so I called her again and she was going to run the case analysis, but she decided to hold off because she's concerned that it might jeopardize Melanie's appeal. I finally got her on the phone. Let's put it that way. It took okay. some time. Yeah. And she said, look, I, I do want to run this and um, I do want to to give the scientific mm-hmm. finding on it because, you know, that's more conclusive. She said, but at this point, I'm afraid if I did that and revealed it and you revealed it on the podcast to the media and to everyone mm-hmm. else that it could really jeopardize her appeal. And I'm interesting. not. Interesting. That would be Melanie's decision. It's interesting. Is Carol friends with Melanie? No, I mean, they're not friends. She worked on the case, um, but no, they're not personal friends or anything of that But that's interesting in a few different ways. It's almost like she's scared of what she might find. It sounds like if she found something that's harmful to Melanie, it could hurt her. It could only, or it could help her, but it sounds like she's fearful that something might hurt her appeal. Yes. I mean, you could look at it that way. It almost sounded to me like she was fearful if the information got out before it was, I don't know, subjected to a court Okay. That's understandable, I guess. You know, I thought so at first. I mean, I was a little irritated, to Mm -hmm. be honest. Um, I was hoping that, look, we could have the answer to this question for you. We can tell you if Melanie didn't write this letter, then she's not involved in this crime. Or, you know, maybe you could say that if she wrote it, she's clearly involved. I wanted to have that. But I don't know that that this will be relevant to Melanie's appeal. And here's why. Um, As I was reminded last night, um, Melanie was acquitted on these charges, Uh, the charges that were Mm -hmm. obstruction of justice that pertain to this. The jury acquitted her. So this issue likely would not come up again in appeal. Yes, but if it showed that there was a high likelihood that Melanie wrote it, that's going to speak pretty loudly to the um, guilt or innocence. I know it couldn't be an issue on appeal, but it could definitely informally sway things. True. Totally agree on that. Um, So unfortunately, we don't. I asked Carol again, though. I mean, we did Mm -hmm. speak about this and I said, look, She's got a friend uh, who called me. I spoke with her. She says they were tight friends for a long time. She says she absolutely recognizes the cadence of the way Melanie speaks and it lines up completely with this letter. And she said, no way to tell. Sorry. Mm -hmm. Um, That is absolutely. She said, you know, it's similar to she gave an example. It's similar to um, eyewitness testimony. You know, Mm -hmm. when you go like, I'm certain I saw this person. There's just no way to tell. Not to mention that the letter was clearly not clearly, but we hypothesize that it was written as someone who was trying to sound like someone else. So if she says she's she's recognizing that writing, it doesn't, I don't know, that just adds like another layer to it. You know uh, it what I mean? Really like does. his ma or her ma, whatever, like all that right. language, that slang that was being used that clearly I don't think Melanie would talk like that. Right. Right. But she'd be in theory writing like someone who would talk like that. So how would you recognize the cadence? That's what I'm I'm saying. So she's pretty much recognizing the cadence of her friend pretending to be someone else. Yes. So that makes it even trickier. I think so. I think it's really tricky to say. I think she genuinely believes it. And maybe she is right. But I don't think there's any conclusive way to tell with what we know. So So maybe one day after Melanie appeals, Carol will look into it and we'll have a, a follow up on that. I'm hoping that even if someone's listening and knows a forensic linguist or you are one and you feel that you could help, we are still open and would be really excited to have some of that information. So please reach out and contact us if you are. 
Okay, so those were the two important things as they relate to Jackie's opinion of Melanie's guilt. Jackie had a lot of other things to say about um, Melanie and her involvement of the crime. So when I asked her, okay, well, what do you think? What do you think actually happened? She said she just didn't know. She said, you know, she thinks Melanie's involved, but she really doesn't, you know, know. She didn't think that the house was a crime scene. She just wasn't sure of the the specifics, which is fine. She still believed that Melanie was guilty. Again, she also said that she didn't think that Brad would ever leave his um, small child. Did she know Brad? Because it sounds like she couldn't have because Melanie didn't tell her about Brad. Well, I'm not sure she might have, though, because remember, Brad was at um, they did family functions oh, and things. They together. were still in each other's lives. Cause Brad was her, yeah, boss, her so. boss for a long time. So she might. have. She probably known. did know him in that capacity as Melanie's boss, not Melanie's lover. It's possible. Yeah. OK. It's possible. Mm-hmm. So likely, I'd say that they've at least crossed paths. Cross paths, probably. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. So that was the information that Jackie had. And, you know, she had a lot more. But that was the most relevant, I think, to um, her opinion of Melanie's guilt. Now, we also heard from someone else who knew Melanie, and um, her name is Barbara, and we conducted an interview with her. So interestingly, Barbara had a different position or um, a different opinion on Melanie and her guilt or her involvement in the crime. So here's Barbara, how she knows Melanie. I've known Melanie maybe about 13 years. We met in prison. Um, I was in prison for aggravated manslaughter. Melanie was the the tutor at night. We both went for a class to learn how to tutor inmates so they can get their GED. She and I were the only inmates allowed to have unsupervised students in a classroom. We didn't need any officers or anything in the classroom because we were trusted, trusted inmates. She became my best friend. I um, am not a person that trusts very easy, but with Melanie, it was different. Melanie is a very kind-hearted, loving person. She's very gentle. At times, she can become very afraid very easily, you know, and that's where I would come in, you know, to calm her and to make sure she was always at peace. She was the one that was always there for me no matter what. She was, she's the person you would call the loyal friend. So it's interesting because Jackie knew Melanie in the life before, right? Mm -hmm. They're good friends for a number of years. I gathered like eight to 10 years, and that was prior to prison. Barbara and Melanie have been friends for, um, you know, or probably in prison for eight to 10 years. Mm-hmm. Um, Barbara's since been released for a number of years, I think three or four years. Mm-hmm. So probably in prison, they know each other, you know, nine or 10 years, something. And so she describes Melanie and her friendship and is giving you, you know, a little bit about that, which is fine. But, you know, more importantly, Barbara had an opinion about Melanie's guilt. So what she thinks and why she thinks this. I definitely feel like she was wrongly convicted. I, look, I did my crime, and I can admit it. I killed my husband, so I know, you know what I mean? And I can tell tendencies of someone else that has killed their husband, and she's not one of them. She's not one of them at all. I feel in my heart, in my gut, and in my soul that she's innocent. You know, and I read her records and everything because we became that close, and she trusted me with things. And... No, absolutely not. She was wrongfully accused and she doesn't deserve to be in there. You also get the feel of a person when you've been in as long as I have. You get the feel of when they're lying and when they're not and when they're sincere. Plus, her, just certain things that she says, certain way that she speaks, certain ways 
that her eyes tear up when she speaks about certain things. A, a person that's a killer, you know what I mean, that just cold-heartedly kills somebody, whatever, is not going to behave the way she does. Not at all. Is not going to fill up with tears or start shaking like a leaf when certain things are said or when certain conversations are brought up about the case. She never changed the story. A person that's going to lie to you always forgets what they say down the line. Like, I can ask the same question a year later, and I'll still get the same answer. A person that's lying is not going to give you the same answer. They have to sit and think and remember what they said in the first place. And she never did that. Okay. Okay, go ahead, Amy. Something I just want to mention from before, it does seem, there seems to be a consistency that Melanie was a good friend, right? Because even though um, Jackie feels the way she does now, she stuck around as a friend, even though she saw these certain tendencies. And now Barbara says she's a good friend. Okay. We've heard that over and over, right? Sure. Just because somebody kills their husband doesn't make them an expert in people who kill their husband. I'm not, you know, I'm just saying Barbara, you know, she did say, I should know I killed my husband, but I don't think it takes one to know one or that gives you some sort of other meter. Um, I do think when you spend enough time in prison, you do have this sixth sense around like, you know, feeling out like a bullshit meter who's innocent, who's guilty, who might be lying. I do want to point out that she said a person who who kills wouldn't be able to cry and shake. And that's certainly untrue. People there are I'm not saying this is Melanie, but in general, that's an untrue statement. There are sociopaths who can very much fake emotion. And we know that. Yes. Right. I agree. So I don't know that I would put much weight on that. I just wanted to point that out. No, I agree. There are definitely people who can fake their emotions and fake cry mm-hmm. for sure. I don't I don't think that's a meter of someone's innocence by saying that they cry and shake. I don't think for us it is. And I don't think for most people it should be. I think she's talking about her experience, though. And she mm-hmm. had an experience also with remember, she did all of her time with mm-hmm. murderers as well. Yeah, so course. I guess that was her experience in relation to those. And I value her opinion on this for sure. Yeah, because she's she did live it. Yeah, but I agree with that point, Amy. People can easily um, fake. Jackie had said, actually, that she felt she felt used by Melanie mm-hmm. at some point. And uh, I said, I, I think I understand. I think I understand what you're saying. But I did ask her, you know, was she a good friend? She said, well, yeah, she was a good friend to me. So one thing that Barbara said about lying that I believe and I've gone mm-hmm. to literature on is lying for a very long period of time and on lots and lots of details, small details to big, is not as easy as Mm -hmm. people think. It is very hard to be completely consistent. So even today when we were talking about, what was it, the story, Mm -hmm. the the felony, the perjury, you went, oh, this might be an inconsistency because we've not been able to find, I have not Mm -hmm. been able to find almost any inconsistency in Melanie's stories. And Mm -hmm. I don't know if I've said this before, but I think um, the audience should know that I've interviewed her in person several times. I've recorded her. I've spoken to her on the phone. I've emailed her. And I've intentionally asked her things over and over again, but different ways Mm -hmm. to see where if there was just a deviation. And I haven't been able to find a deviation yet. So I do think for me, that's always been a point Mm -hmm. um, that she's completely consistent. And Mm -hmm. I know that you've said before that she's had plenty of time to rehearse and that could be the counter. You know, this is Barbara's opinion. Okay, Barbara, but she was convicted. You know, Um, she was convicted in a court of law and you know, there's a lot of people who believe she's guilty. So why do you think that is? So Barbara talks about that. Let me tell you, if a prosecutor wants to prosecute you to the fullest degree of the law, they're going to push it no matter what. Because you're guilty until you're proven innocent. And that's the way it works. 
they don't, everybody doesn't know the whole story. They look at what's on 2020, and when you're an inmate, you're automatically judged just for being an inmate. And that's how everybody will always look at you until you get out and they don't know that you've been in prison and they see a whole different person. And then once they find out, they're like, that, not her, because it's happened to me. You know what I mean? So it's just people are very ignorant. They don't know what they're talking about, and all they see is what they read in the paper or what they may see on TV, which is a bunch of bullshit. I definitely agree with her that you are guilty until proven innocent in our system. I couldn't, I can't agree with that one more. I do too. I really think, you know, it's the idea of innocence until proven guilty, but that's not the reality of the system. And mm-hmm. uh, she, she gets it, you know, yep. she knows it. You know, she said that she thought that people were very judgmental of Melanie uh, because of what they saw in Dateline and the 48 hours. And I mean, to a degree, that's true, right? We all made judgments. I did too, just by the way, you know, um, I watched these things before I even interviewed Melanie and or along the way I've been watching them. And of course, I'm like, well, she turned her head that way. Her eyes look cold. She's not crying here. You know, I'm guilty of some of the things that we say other people are guilty of. Mm -hmm. So... You know, Barbara talked a little bit about her own case and how things, you know, when a prosecutor wants to push, they're going to push. And I mean, obviously, the prosecution pushed for murder because they believed Melanie was guilty of that murder. So and I think there's no question that the prosecutor was overzealous in this case. I don't think we can. That's not really up for debate here. I think that's been established. I mean, I feel like we've established that. um, And I'm not sure, though. Other people might think, look, she was really taking her charge seriously. She was a good prosecutor. She took it to the full extent. I think that you and I have established, and I think we will again in the last episode, that there were certainly lines that were crossed um, that may have, you know, been over the overzealous line for sure. So Barbara is adamant that Melanie is innocent um, and that she can absolutely tell that she spent enough time with her, that she knows that she's seen true emotion. That was something someone else asked about, too, that I briefly with it, I thought I would mention here is that I've spent a lot of time watching Melanie, too. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are, she does show emotion. It's mm-hmm. not true that she's she doesn't cry lots, mm-hmm. um, but she does. I have I've definitely seen times where she can well up. I've definitely seen times where her mouth sort of like you know, that shake that, you know, mouths do. And, um, you know, she she's definitely has, to me uh, can be emotional mm-hmm. at times. So. And that's, I think that's an interesting point because we did receive a listener comment, which I think we'll discuss next episode about how cold she sounds and she only, her voice only cracks one time. And, you know, so I think we can revisit that again, but I do think that is important too. I think so too. Enough people asked about it. So Barbara answered and I figured I would too. And um, I also want to point out that Barbara is not the only person who has served time with Melanie that believes she's innocent. Melanie has quite a lot of support on the inside. A lot. It's interesting. I'd ask Barbara about that. You know, I asked her about other people, like are inmates the supportive generally of inmates? And she said, not really, because she said most of the women, she's like, most of us have all mm-hmm. all owned up to our crimes. Mm-hmm. Like we're all guilty. We're all caught. We're all, you know, yep. there. She said most people just own it. So, you know, And we've talked about that before, that it's a common misconception that everyone in prison thinks they are innocent, but that's just not the case. I mean, I've taught wrongful conviction several times in prison, and I often ask my students, how many of you are wrongfully convicted? No one's ever said they were wrongfully convicted. Yeah, it's rarer than people think, you know, so it it's almost like maybe we should listen then the ones that are, you know, standing on the soapbox. Yeah, maybe not. Um, 
Anyway, so Barbara also described Melanie's life in prison now for us a little bit. And while this really isn't relevant to anyone's conclusions, and I normally wouldn't play this, so many people have emailed asking me about Melanie's life in prison and how she lives. And and I'm sorry, along that same vein, I just want to reiterate that Melanie will not talk about her children. Anyone who asked a question about Melanie's children, we did not bring those questions to Melanie because Melanie told us from the beginning that topic is off limits. Yep. So I'm sorry. No, thanks. Um, so a little bit about how Melanie lives. Because Melanie just doesn't like hang out with people all the time. Melanie, she goes to work, she goes to her visits, and then she's in her room. You know, she lives in South Hall. So she lives by herself. She lives in her own room. She doesn't have any bunkies. She doesn't have anything, which is like, that's like the hotel acclaim. Like, I, that's where I started in South Hall. So it's different. If you're in different units, like Stone Hillcrest, where you're going to go crazy after a while, then maybe it would be different because she would have to deal with a lot of people. But being just having to deal with 15 people uh, that you live with on a wing, they're on, on your own separate rooms, it makes life a lot easier. Because of that, the officers can, you know, individually, like, they can see who the chaotic ones are and who the good ones are. And uh, one officer was, like, really, like, treated her really bad. Some officers were crushed on her, so, you know, and she'd, like, just tell them to, you know, go away. A lot of the officers really respected her. They really do. You know what I mean? Even the captains, the lieutenants, they show her a lot of respect. And, and I like that because I was very protective of her. For those of you who asked, um, that's the information we have about Melanie's life as it is now. After interviewing Jackie and Barbara, Amy and I thought that we would be done, actually. We thought that was going to be the end of our, our conclusion to the podcast. But we were wrong, and we got quite a surprise with someone who wrote in and wanted to speak to us. Someone who was integral to both Melanie's case and to the prosecution's case. And someone you may remember from an earlier episode. For everyone who's paying attention, in episode six, opening arguments, one of the prosecutor's key witnesses was Jim Finn. Jim Finn was a good friend of Melanie's from nursing school, and he became a very important witness during the trial. And even though he is a private person and he wasn't thrilled about the idea of giving an interview, he said he wanted to speak with us and he wanted to do it because he simply felt like it was the right thing to do. And I have to commend him for that. It's really interesting to talk to Jim because a lot of people wrote in about him and asked to what degree was he questioned, to what degree was he a suspect. And we weren't really sure, you know, and M Melanie, I don't know if you recall this, Amy, but Melanie had mentioned that Jim was questioned um, and she thought he was investigated heavily, but then kind of stopped herself and said, well, I'm not really sure. Because she didn't have any contact with him, right? No, she didn't. And she didn't really have any, you know, anything conclusive. So he describes their friendship and how they used to talk on the phone for hours. He said they really were, you know, quite close um, he they met in nursing school. Were they um, involved romantically? I don't recall. They were not. Okay, they were just good friends. They didn't have a romantic involvement. Although Jim says that he was interested in one, but Melanie just wanted to be friends, and mm -hmm. so they were really just platonic. Mm -hmm. But he said, you know, at, at the height of their friendship, they would talk on the phone almost every day or several times a week for a couple of hours, and he said that they were close. 
And I asked him what happened. Did they remain close or whatnot? But he actually moved away. I think he moved from New Jersey to Pennsylvania. He finished the, the nursing program somewhere else. And he said, you know, once he moved away, they would talk a little bit more sporadically, as happens when someone moves away, right? He moved away before the trial. Well, he well he moved away after nursing school. Oh, so gotcha. It was an earlier, much okay. earlier time. Okay. He said they still talked. They talked more sporadically. They still emailed, but it was more once in a while. Okay, so he's got a lot of information here. And one of the things I want to lead out with, because I was really shocked to hear is when he talks about a nursing conference that he and Melanie and a couple other people went to, and this was in Atlantic City. You know, it's funny, I was reading the comments and a lot of people had a big problem. They go, why did she go back to Atlantic City to look for him all the time? I was actually with Melanie and we had another uh, student in our class, Jackie, at the time. There was a, a nursing convention. I'm pretty sure it was at the Trump Plaza. She said that they had had a fight and he says, oh, you're going to Atlantic City? Well, I'm going to go to Atlantic City, too. And that's the last thing she ever wanted to hear. Because I think there was a time when Bill like, kind of got away from gambling, if I remember right. So she kind of she was distracted all day, I remember that day, and really worried about like if she was going to be there. Somehow, some way, she talked to him on the phone while we were there. And he said he was in, he was in Atlantic City, and he was gambling and just doing the whole thing. Now, he, was he there, or was he just doing that to mess with her? I have no idea. But she was really affected by that. <laughs> You know, hey, he's gambling. Like, who wants a gambler in your relationship? Like, you want your relationship to be normal. You don't want somebody to be an alcoholic. You don't want a gambler. Like, that just doesn't work. So when everybody says, you know, Melanie, oh, she, you know, she's going to Atlantic City looking for him all the time. That just sounds really weird. Well, Jackie and I were in the car with her circa 1995-96 looking for Bill after we left the convention. She she begged me, come on, she just please drive around and we'll go to some of the clubs where he goes. Let me just run in and see if he's there. So we actually did that. It, it was something that was going on for a while. I thought that was an interesting point and here. And he talks about Jackie. Jackie's the other woman that we had spoken with, correct? That's correct. Oh, that's they knew interesting. Each other because they all knew each other from nursing mm-hmm. school. One of my takeaways here, though, is uh, I didn't think it was that crazy that she was driving around Atlantic City looking for Bill because I actually did that with her. <laughs> yeah, that's that's interesting. Very it, interesting. At least in in some small measure lends some maybe small support to her story that mm-hmm. she would be driving around looking for him when everyone said that's nuts. Mm-hmm. Maybe it is nuts, but maybe she's done it before. So mm-hmm. maybe he provides a little context for that. Okay. So, you know, Jim moves away. And like he said, they were sporadically in contact. However, about a month or two before Bill was murdered, Melanie and Jim get in contact a lot more again. And he says that, you know, it was more emails and more talking on the phone. And he could tell that things were going badly at home. You know, Melanie Mm -hmm. was honest that marriage wasn't great. And she said that, you know, Bill was acting erratically. The subject of these communications between them became really important at trial because the prosecution asserted that Melanie was eliciting important information from Jim about how to purchase a gun. Which is true. Uh, mm-hmm. That That's not really, I guess, the dispute or, you know, Melanie doesn't dispute that. And, I, you know, it's interesting. Jim, Jim didn't dispute it either, but said he felt like it was actually his suggestion. But I guess, it, you know, to what end or for what purpose is where, you know, the, the, the story kind of deviates, you know. Mm-hmm. Is it because Melanie, again, is she trying to get this gun to murder her husband or is she trying to get this gun for her husband? So I'm not sure that that is such a, you know, such a bone here. I think that she would stipulate, yeah, I she said it on our 
Or recording, yeah. So later on, so Melanie tells Jim that Bill has been murdered. And later on, when Melanie becomes the focus of the investigation, the police are looking for accomplices. Remember, Mm -hmm. this is when they start looking into the men in Melanie's life. And so they come looking for Jim Finn. So let's hear Jim describe what happens. Now, I worked at the Central Jersey Blood Center on Shrewsbury Avenue. It was a blood bank. So on that day, remember people telling me, Jim, we had cops coming through the front door, cops coming through the back door, and they're looking for you. And everybody's like freaking out. But what the hell's going on here? Now, I wasn't there. How did they not know that? <laughs> like, nobody got my figure eight. They didn't know where I was on every day of the week. I mean, isn't that how they work? So everyone listening, a figure eight is kind of what the alphabet agency guys use and police use. When you're going to follow somebody, you follow them all week, you follow them all next week, and then eventually you find out everything that they do every Monday. On Tuesdays, he does this. It gets that pretty accurate because we're all pretty much creatures of habit. Yeah, so I kind of thought that was kind of sinister. Like, if they did know I, or they thought I was there and didn't know it, well, that was a mistake. And if they knew I wasn't there and did that anyway, well, now we're moving into psychological operations where we want everyone who works with Jim to think that the police are after him and he did something really wrong. Okay, I've got a big problem with that. But again, I don't know. I'm going to pause there because I I have a big problem with that as well. There's two sides of this coin. There's a bunch of police coming to this guy's work who has done nothing wrong, Mm -hmm. you know, and either they are, uh, I'm going to just say it, totally incompetent because Mm -hmm. they have no idea where he works, or they are trying to send a message to everyone he works with that a bunch of cops are looking for him and put this intense pressure on him. I don't know which one is worse, but I think both are bad. So just to understand this correctly, they were looking for him just on not the days he worked. Correct. Okay. So they came looking for him on a day that he was not at work. Mm-hmm. And so his point is, which which is worse? Is it incompetence because they should have known that if you're going to send a mm-hmm. team in? Or is it, you know, kind of psychological warfare? Yeah. We're putting the pressure on you by letting everyone know we're looking for you. Yeah. They probably were just incompetent. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, Uh, I'm going to I'm going to go with incompetent as well uh, on that one and say that, okay, it was just a mistake. And that makes me feel better, to be honest. (laughs) Okay. so anyway, so we'll fast forward. And I had to be down in Howell at the Howell Blood Center on Route 9. So I would always come in through the back door, you know, put my stuff down and then come on out and get ready for work. And then the phone rings. And uh, the manager there answers the phone and she hangs up the phone and she says, well, that was weird. I'm like, what? She says, that was Lynn. She wanted to know if you were here. I thought, of course I'm here. I'm scheduled to be here. Am I not, not scheduled to be here today? Of course you are. So in the next couple of minutes, this is where my life would change. So these two really tall detectives. So I'm, I'm a pretty tall guy. I'm like 6'2", six 6'3". Six I'm not used to looking up at people. <laughs> these guys walk in, show the badge. They knew who I was. They came right back. Yeah, you know, they introduced themselves. Um, Detective Sergeant Jeff Cronenfeld and his partner. I remember his partner. Thing. He says, yeah, we got a couple of questions for you uh, about Melanie McGuire. I'm like, oh, yeah. Melanie was saying people, her friends were being questioned, so I kind of expected it at some point. So he says, we want you to go drive with us to a nearby police station, and then we'll talk to you there. I'm like, yeah, sure, yeah, whatever. So we walk in, there's one, one cop there. He's looking at me. Like, yeah, we want to put you in jail for the rest of your life. <laughs> and he goes, uh, tells the detectives, hey, you need the camera? And he says, no, nah, we don't need the camera. Well, I'll bet you 100 bucks there's video of the whole thing, but whatever. 
And so, so the scene gets set. I'm sitting down at one side of the table by myself. They're sitting on the other side of the table. Everything is very stiff, very uncomfortable. It's quiet. Nobody's saying anything. And he says, uh, Jim, uh, we think Melanie McGuire killed her husband. And we think there's an accomplice. Okay, so let that hang in the air for just a minute. They're glaring at me. Like, I'm feeling pressure like I've never felt in my life before. <laughs> Wait a minute, guys. That was the implication. The funny thing is, they never actually came out and said, we think you are the accomplice. We, they just say to you, we think there's an accomplice. And then they dramatically pause. It's very effective, I have to say. But, um, so mind you, here I am sitting in this police station where I'm not entirely sure where it is. And these two guys are now accusing me of a crime that's going to put me in prison for the rest of my life if I'm convicted. So what's the first thing I start thinking about? How many news stories I saw this year of all the people who were released from prison because DNA evidence proved them innocent and they were serving over 30 plus years in jail. Anybody listening to this, think of that. 30 plus years in jail. You can't do that. Uh, I don't have an attorney with me. I don't know what I'm doing. You want to get to the truth? I'm all for the truth. Let's do it. But man, and if you ever speak to the police, you're crazy not to have an attorney with you. Uh, now I know way better to do that. They're coming from a place where you're guilty and we're going to prove it. It's not, it's not said. It's implied. They tell you nothing. They tell you nothing. They ask questions and you're there to give them answers. And that's all it is. My interrogation lasted for eight hours. Eight hours straight, no break. So, uh, again, you know, we're sitting in this room, and these guys are telling me that my friend's a murderer. Now they're implying that I helped her. And so, I'm now, number one, I'm suspicious of them now, too. What's going on here? And what is Kronenfeld? The first freaking question out the gate, what does he ask me? He says, we have pictures of you and Melody going into a hotel room. I said, Really? well, why don't you show me those pictures? And he goes, well, I don't have to show you. Well, boy, that was a fifth grade response. First question out the gate is a lie. We've got trust problems now, guys. Well, I think he's right. Now, there's a lot. We're actually not done with this. But the first question out, out of the gate, like he says, is a lie. Mm-hmm. And now we have trust problems. So initially I thought, yeah, that's a really bad move. Mm-hmm. Like, to like you're, you're, you know, the first thing you're going to do is lie to someone. You're supposed to gain trust first. Mm-hmm. But then I also thought, do you think they had him mistaken with Brad? We have a picture of you coming out of a hotel room with Melanie. And I thought again, oh, my God, either it's incompetence. <laughs> do they look anything alike? No, no, they look nothing alike. But but I the point that Jim makes is a good one. Like if you're starting off already, the first thing you're saying to me is a lie. I don't mm-hmm. trust you. I don't want to tell you anything. I don't want to talk to you. I'm going to feel guarded. Well, they're allowed to lie to you. That's part of their. Oh, I know. But we can talk know, about how I feel about yeah. that after. <laughs> so, all right. Then it's back and forth. And uh, this is part of me that kind of can step back and just look at something while it's happening. And I'm going, wow, you know, they really do. Good cop, bad cop. Jonas Felt was a bad cop. His partner was a good cop. And it's, it's, I think it's designed to just completely keep you off balance. Uh, now, now it's a fight. You know, I, all right, hey, you have a legitimate question? I'll give you a legitimate answer. If, you're, if I think you're bullshitting me, I'm going to throw something right back at you. I'm not playing. Like, I'm in danger now. I'm in a lot of danger. 
And so finally, one time, good cop loses his cool. He says, you know, get really sick and tired of you throwing every question back at us. We've been working for like 18 hours now. Why don't you just answer the question? Maybe because I think my life is in danger now and maybe I'm kind of trying to protect myself. Do you think? Yeah, like the gravity of the situation all of a sudden is on him. So Jim knew and Melanie told people that they're talking to my friends, right? But I don't think he knew that they're going to be looking at him as an accomplice. Also, eight hours for an interrogation is a lot when they have no reason at all to believe that this person was even involved. So I was going to ask you that. I'm shocked. Eight hours. That's, that's a lot of time wasted that you could have been with someone, like investigating something else. It's also <laughs> a long time to interrogate someone. If, if Without a break. If I people mean. want to know why, you know, wrongful convictions or false confessions happen, what, you know, there's a mm-hmm. psychological break that can happen in well, long interrogations. And Jim was, uh, you know, he held his ground, but yeah, eight but hours. Imagine, well, imagine somebody who is younger, maybe has mental health issues or... Under the influence, all right, you can see how someone could crack because Jim seems like he has a really good head on his shoulders and he was able to stick it out. Exactly. But even he felt the pressure. I was Mm -hmm. thinking of Brendan Dassey, you know, Mm -hmm. someone young, someone, you know, who's Mm -hmm. got mental issues and whatnot. And yeah, so eight hours of an interrogation and he's realizing like the gravity of the situation is on him now. Like, wow, Mm -hmm. I'm I'm, they're actually looking at me like I'm an accomplice. I don't have a lawyer. Mm -hmm. Um, and so what happens afterwards, we we talked a little bit more, but so he realizes, all right, they're looking at me, you know, they're staring at me as an accomplice. And the police asked him to take a lie detector test. And initially he says no, which I, I would say, smart man, don't take a lie detector test. But eventually he agrees to. So he talks about what it was like to take a lie detector test. We're hours into this thing and they're constantly saying look, you need to take a lie detector test. So I eventually agreed to take a lie detector test. Don't take a lie detector test. (laughs) It's a mental rape. Don't ever take a lie, unless it's given by your attorney in your attorney's office, don't ever take a lie detector test. He asked the control question, and then he'll ask, uh, you know, this really intrusive, personal question about you. And if you don't answer it properly, well, he'll say, oh, well, he was being deceptive. He starts asking me all these things. It's awful. And it's so fun. And at one point, he goes to me, hey, you're doing something with your breathing. Knock it off. What are you talking about? <laughs> unless, unless you're having a problem with me hyperventilating, I don't really know what he was meaning by that. But so anyway... He gets to the end and he looks at me and he goes, I'm going to tell him you failed. Oh man, I flipped out. He said, this, you call this fucking shit modern, you know, modern equipment, but modern technology, take a walk, man. And he goes, I'm going to tell him you passed. Oh, <laughs> they just mess with your head. It's, it's constant. And it's funny. I saw Jeff's, Kronenfeld shortly after that, we were, I think we were going to do a recorded conversation with Melanie. And said, hey, Jeff, this is when you pass the lie detector test, does the examiner originally tell you that you failed it? And he goes, maybe. <laughs> lie detector. I'm going to tell him you failed. I mean, they're allowed to do that. Again, it's just police strategy. I don't think it's right, but it's yeah. not against the code of ethics. It's not against it. theirs, but I, I mean, I'm, I'm so opposed to this. I'm so, you know, there's a- various areas that need reform and it's like, come on, you, you, this is, this is psychological. Tor- he called mm-hmm. it mental rape. And I would yeah. have to say, I agree. Like mm-hmm. he's hyperventilating. They're telling him to stop breathing. 
He finishes. He probably, you know, he probably couldn't breathe the whole time, gets it off. And the guy looks at him and says, I'm going to tell him you failed just to see his reaction. <laughs> That's messed up. I think this is wrong. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm, I'm just really um, opposed to this, mm-hmm. that, that kind of practice, to be honest. I'm, but I'm also, in fairness, I'm opposed to police being able to lie to suspects. Yeah. I appreciate the English model in which you can only use facts to confront mm-hmm. facts. I mean, if we're expected to tell the truth to the police, why can't we expect them to tell us the truth? Eh, fair point. That's my own feeling about it. But mm-hmm. he also made a good point earlier, too. He didn't have a lawyer at first. He was like, uh, When get- you say at first, he got one after all of this went down. Yeah. I mean, he he had his first interrogation. He took a lie detector. He did all of this without a lawyer, which is, you know, brave. But also, as he would say now, in in hindsight, don't ever do that. Yeah. It's, not the, it's not the right move. So... Okay, so Jim continued to have meetings with the police and prosecutors. Uh, You know, there were several meetings over the course of um, some time. And, you know, he talks about also like these meetings and what it feels like to be, you know, he he talks about what it feels like to be involved in in a prosecution of this nature. So here's what he has to say of being, you know, in the middle of this. If you ever find yourself uh, the subject or a target of a murder investigation, God help you. Because you have no idea what happens to your life. It is pretty unbelievable. Now, you talk about intimidation, right? I had sent this article to Melanie uh, a while back saying, you know, hey, look, the police can get it wrong. Here's this article about this police chase that ended up, you know, busting up a lot of property. You know, thankfully, I think nobody was hurt. But, you know, they should have backed off and just let the guy go. So we sit down. What does the assistant prosecutor pull up out of his briefcase? What's the first thing? A copy of that article. Yeah, so like he's going, he's trying to get me off my guard. Forget it. Like everything you do on the internet, everything you do on your cell phone, they already have it. I think at that point, you know, it's still hanging that they're holding the accomplice thing over my head, but it's starting to finally relax. I have an attorney now. They can't mess with me like they did before because now they have to go through the attorney, even though they still would come mess with me once in a while. And I think at one point, my attorney, like, and my attorney was weird. Like, I'm not saying he did anything wrong, but he would always disappear in a room with them. He's a former prosecutor. They'd be in there for like 15, 20 minutes, and then he would come out. He wouldn't say anything that went on in there. I just found that to be pretty odd. And eventually, he disappears into the room with them again. And he comes out, and he's like, all right, you're fine. He says, you know, at this point, you know, they're they're going to be doing witness prep probably sometime, you know, within the next year. It's You're just waiting for the trial. I'm like, fine. He says, you know, if they ever want to talk to you or anything, call me. But, you know, he says you can talk to them about the stuff that's already been gone over. If they just need some clarification, it's fine. You don't need to call me on it. And uh, for the most part, that didn't happen. So it was fine. It just occurred to me. I don't know how it just occurred to me now, but. People are spending a lot of money out of pocket to get lawyers if you're, you know, a suspected witness. I'm sure the uh, prosecution's not paying for Jim's lawyer. Of course not. No. This <laughs> Again, is a- I'm financially motivated. That's what I'm thinking of. I'm like, wow, like, who has, number one, who has time, right? People have their own lives. Who has time to you know, take out of your life that much time? But also, that that's a lot of money. He didn't, you know what? Do you have a choice? You have you no don't, choice. No. Not, no, not at all. I also, he said some things about his attorney that his attorney was a former prosecutor who would disappear he said, like, he would disappear with the prosecutors and then come back after, you know, 15, 20 minutes alone. I don't know. They're probably bullshitting. I don't know. Could be bullshitting. That's fine. That's fine. Um, it sounded a little off to me. Yeah, mm-hmm. it could be. But I would also, 
think that uh, at that point I would want my lawyer kind of in my presence and I'd want to know, I don't want to see them disappearing with Mm -hmm. the prosecutor. I want to know you're on my side and you're advocating for me Mm -hmm. Um, because, you know, this is an adversarial relationship. You know, it's supposed to be. Well, it's supposed to be right. (laughs) Um, Okay. So there was something before too, when Jim was talking about his interrogation, you know, he, he's talking, first of all, he's talking about all these meetings that he had and when lawyers are starting to ship out and, you know, but it's like, how did he decide or how did he know that he was going to be a witness or what What did he even think about Melanie's guilt at this point, right? He swept into all of this, mm-hmm. but does he think Melanie's guilty, okay? And he says that there was a turning point for him during the interrogation. I don't know if she directly asked me, hey, what if uh, she may have. Um, I'm, when someone's telling me, hey, you know, I'm really worried about my husband, he's really escalating. And I think this is before it got physical, but she says it's really escalating verbally. Well, you know, we all know where that goes. It just gets worse. And so I'm saying, hey, and you know her stature, Bill's pretty much the same size as me, if I remember right. So you need to get a gun to protect you and your children in case he goes off the rails. I mean, you just have to have that kind of equalizer there to protect you. And she always kept saying, nah, nah, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. I just couldn't understand it, but, you know, but th- yeah, this is where it all changed for me. Cronenfeld, he goes, Melanie bought a gun and that stopped me dead in my tracks. I just looked at him and went, she bought a gun. He says, yeah, she bought it in Pennsylvania and she bought it two days before her husband was killed. Whoa. <laughs> Wait, wait a minute. She's telling me, I don't want to buy a gun. I'm not ready to do that. I'm not ready. To, oh, come on, man. You like, you got to protect you. No, I'm not ready to do that. And now this guy is telling me, you know, and hey, is he lying? Well, how come you didn't think he was lying? There's something about the truth. When you hear it, you know it. This this was the, the, the shot to the gut that she like gets you. And I don't even know where I am. I didn't know. I wasn't sure anymore. It's like, look, if she had been straight with me, all right, Jim, I bought a gun, all right? Like, you know, what do I do with it? Or, you know, uh, tell me about this. Like, whatever. I've, I've been happy to answer your questions. But she, she never admitted that. And I, she doesn't have to. Really doesn't have to tell me. And was that a lie? Or was she just, did she have other reasons to not want to tell me she bought a gun? I don't know. Yeah, so in Jim's conversation with uh, Melanie, you know, they talked about a gun, but she never actually told him. And I think... For him, as he's saying here, when he learned this from the police, he really, it really shocked him. And the reason why also is because, you know, he said even in these conversations at his suggestion, Melanie was always adamantly opposed to having a gun and didn't want to shoot and didn't want to have a firearm around. So I think, you know, her not telling him this felt, you know, to him, it felt like a lie. Well, also, this might have been the point where he starts thinking, well, could she have done this? Right. This is absolutely Mm -hmm. the point. So when I asked him, you know, he said it, this Mm -hmm. is the turning point for me where I began to think, yes. And I think maybe where he began to feel better about his participation with the prosecution, because, um, you know, Jim would also agree to record Melanie later on, as we discussed in the earlier episode. So he made two recordings the recordings that he made, you know, were conversations between them where he asked her if she did it. She, you know, mm-hmm. she absolutely still says no. There's nothing damning in him. She maintains her innocence. But I asked Jim, you know, why did you record her? Was there a pressure? I mean, you know, 
Why did you actually do this? So why do you do you know, recorded conversations? Hey, I needed to know, too, at that point. At the time, if you'd asked me that then, I would say, yeah, you know, I did it voluntarily. Nobody, nobody threatened me with anything or anything like that. Because you always think about this. This is always a part of your life. It really never goes away. And every now and then, you're just going to pop back to it. And I started to think, like, what was going on there? Like, why would you do it? Like, I would never do that again. Like, why did you do that? And I started to actually think, is there a little Stockholm syndrome working here? Maybe. (laughs) So maybe, like, you just become so terrified of your captors, you know, they keep throwing you away for the rest of your life. Maybe you say, well, if I help, maybe they'll be nice to me. I don't know. It's not a bad point, right? And when he said Stockholm syndrome, I was like, this guy's really insightful, I have to say. (laughs) Yeah. Um, You know, to some degree, you want want to please the people, Mm -hmm. you know, and it's not literally their, you know, captors, but you want to please them. But also, you know, Jim legitimately just wanted to know the truth, I think. And he was willing to do, you know, he's under pressure, obviously. He's uh, under intimidation and, you know, he he has to do something. I think they're also looking at him like we talked about this um, in an early episode, but clear your name. If you record her, if you have nothing to hide, why why not record her? And yeah. he was like, okay, mm-hmm. I'm going to do this. I'm going to find out the truth. So he records Melanie. Nothing comes of that. But there are still those conversations that they had about the gun. And so he is clearly going to be a prosecution witness. Mm-hmm. You know, he, these meetings go on for a long time. And he eventually starts, you know, he meets with um, the cops a lot. Then there are, you know, he's meeting with Patty Precioso and she's prepping him as a witness. And, you know, he's getting ready to take the stand. So the day comes when he's going to testify. And I think that was a very nerve wracking day for Mm -hmm. him, as it would be for a lot of people. But also remember, you're a private person. And all of a sudden you're in a witness stand in a criminal trial that is on court television. Mm -hmm. And you're testifying not against a stranger or, you know, someone, oh, I saw this person participate in a crime. You're testifying against someone who was your really good friend. So Jim describes this day in court and what it was like and what he thinks about it now. But, you know, the intensity level of having to testify, I got to tell you, I've done some pretty tough things in my life. And when it came time to testify, they walk you up to the door of the, of the courtroom. I got one cop on my left, one cop on my right. <laughs> I guess they didn't want me to go anywhere. <laughs> and you think to yourself, God, all I want to do is just run away from these guys and jump out the window and land on the curb. And I would much rather do that than go into this room and testify. But you have to. <laughs> it was that like brief moment just before everything gets started. And so I'm looking around in the chair. There's the camera where the whole world's going to get to see me and you know, have to testify. I'm not someone who wants to be media savvy or anything like that. I'm a pretty private person. Um, well, what are you doing this for? Well, you know, the truth is the truth and it has to win. And that's just how I feel about it. You know, if I have to put myself out there a little bit, I'm going to do it. So there. But um, <laughs> I'm sitting here in my favorite chair, the witness chair. And yeah. I, all right, I'm going to do it. I'm just going to look over at her. <laughs> and it was like we both looked at each other at exactly the same time. Well, it looks good deal. Uh, I'm sure she was not the least bit happy with me. And, you know, when you see a friend testifying against you, totally understandable. And as it went along and along, I I wonder, I wonder about Patty Prezioso. I wonder what her real motivation was to put me up. It may be what she said it is. I don't know. But, you know, well, she kept me up there almost all day. And I always said, I don't really feel like I have a whole lot here offer the prosecution's case you know maybe a little hole here a little there gets filled in okay whatever 
But, you know, did she keep me up there because she wanted the jury to see, hey, jury, here's Jim Finn. He's in love with Melanie. And we're going to keep him up here all day because Jim thinks Melanie's guilty. And we really want to sear that into your brain. I wonder. But they never ask, they don't ever ask a witness, do you think this person is innocent or guilty? They're not allowed to do that. Obviously, if he's testifying for the prosecution, that's the side of the coin that he's on. But they're just asking him factual questions, right? Like when you spoke to her, when you did this. Yes. Okay. But I think I told you when I read through, when I read through his testimony, I I was surprised at how many pages there were because mm-hmm. I've gone through so, you know, so many of the transcripts here, a ton of pages. And I noticed and this is before I interviewed him. There was a lot of lot of repetitive information. And I said to myself, I think I even said it to James, like, I don't understand. They're going over and over. Like and not even relevant, not even necessarily relevant, right? Not necessarily relevant. Or if it was, they were killing it. And sometimes, no pun intended, but sometimes the prosecution does that will ask certain things different mm-hmm. ways. But it did seem to me uh, when I read it, I was like, this is overkill. And I couldn't understand why. And it kind of clicked with me when Jim said it. Oh, you know, maybe this is why, you know, as mm-hmm. Jim said, it didn't occur to me that perhaps they were just really trying to, Patty was really trying to get the jury to see, well, if this is a guy who loves her and was in mm-hmm. love with her and he believes she's guilty, mm-hmm. she must be guilty. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, you know, that, trial strategy, right? Trial strategy. She was mm-hmm. a smart prosecutor, yeah. right? So, uh, you know, but Jim definitely described feeling differently about, uh, you know, what he was doing before and after and in hindsight and, and looking back, you know. So uh, what is Jim? What was Jim's conclusion? Well, Jim said that he thought, you know, he did think Melanie was guilty and he was, you know, he was doing his part. And Jim's like, if you hear him, he'll talk about, you know, just doing the right thing and just being honest. Like, I'm just going to go up there. I was going to just tell the truth. I thought Melanie was guilty. Um, I asked him what he thinks now, you know, okay, you thought Melanie was guilty. Do you still think she's guilty? And he said that for years he thought Melanie was guilty for sure and that he knew all the facts. But he said that he was really surprised by a lot of what he's since learned. And he talks about um, our our podcast and what he's even learned through that and, you know, his feelings now about Melanie and her guilt. Here's where I got a big problem with the prosecution. Patty Prezioso told me, I remember it like it was two days ago. She said, I've been to that bridge and I can totally see where Melanie could have easily wheeled those suitcases up and flipped them right over the side. And then I see your video. Whoa, (laughs) you guys can't even pick the damn thing up off the floor. That video that you guys made with the suitcases and you put the weights in the suitcases and you tried to lift them over the bar. You, you wait Amy in, and she's kind of roughly the same size as Melanie at the time. Let me tell you, Melanie, Melanie's not somebody who ever went to the gym. <laughs> no way. <laughs> Forget it. No way. But, but George Larry, wasn't that the guy who talked to Bill about buying a gun? You guys said he wanted, Bill said to him that he wanted to buy a gun, but he couldn't because he had a bad record and he wasn't legally able to do it, so he was going to get his wife to do it. So how can they muzzle him on the stand? And say, well, all he's allowed to say is, yes, I talked to Bill McGuire about buying that. Like, that doesn't cut it. Look at all the detail about that that was taken out. And it totally fits Melanie's story. Is that, is that exculpatory? Do I know if Melanie McGuire killed her husband? At this point, I went from totally believing it. Now, I don't know. That's a pretty giant move. You know, what did everybody say? Well, they, Melanie was convicted, you know, on, on circumstantial evidence. And they'll say... Yeah, but it was a mountain of circumstantial evidence. Yeah, well, after hearing your podcast, I see a mountain of reasonable doubt. How could anyone be convicted 
convicted with that amount of reasonable doubt. It's stunning. That's dangerous to all of us, not just to Melanie. Wow, that's well said. I think so, better than most <laughs> others could say it. And I, I went, oh, wow. I mean, he's right, right? There was, first of all, it's a great point. There's a mountain of circumstantial evidence, but there's a mountain of reasonable doubt. And that's just, you know, what he learned. At first, he only saw the one side, and now he's seeing the other. And Jim's not saying that he thinks Melanie's innocent, to be clear. After, and neither are we, necessarily, right? We're just saying there's a reasonable doubt. Correct. I think the important point is that he's open. Mm -hmm. You know, he's like, you know, I thought something. I thought that way because the prosecution told me a lot of things. You know, they kind of, he said they compartmentalized him, kept him in a box, you know, um, and told him certain things. And that's what he believed. He just Mm -hmm. believed that. And, you know, he says that he feels differently now having learned so much and having the wisdom of time and, Mm -hmm. you know, being so far away from it. And his conclusion now is he doesn't know, Mm -hmm. you know, it could be one way or the other. Um, What I can also tell you, though, is that this has had an extraordinary impact on his life, being involved in an investigation. And he talks about that, uh, you know, the the long-term impact that this has had on him. I couldn't believe my name came up in your podcast. I was like, oh my God. And now, and now Melanie's talking about me. I'm like, okay, here comes the, the flamethrower. She's got it. Get ready. <laughs> and I, I have to say, she was totally fair. She described me in, in, in the context that you guys were talking about, and she was totally fair. And uh, I appreciated it. I really did. Well, I would say, you know, I would say I'm sorry that I didn't do a little more investigation on my part. You know, if I would have known everything that I learned from the podcast today, and you know, not even all of it happened half of it. And then I would, well, how about a third of it? Find you a third of the stuff that I learned from your podcast back then. That could have changed things. So I would say, yeah, I'm sorry. I just didn't try to maybe work a little harder. Maybe I just needed it to be done and I needed to get away. You know, I, I don't really know where it would have gone, but I sure as hell would have had a big problem with a lot of those things. And I didn't know anything about them. And I think I wrote to you, like I was on the periphery of this whole thing. Look what they did to me. I mean, it just, it completely consumes your life. You don't sleep. You don't eat right. You get sick. You, I mean, just, just reviewing all this in the past month, I started getting nightmares again. It's a little PTSD thing. I think, man, what did I do this for? But that got done to me a long time ago. You guys didn't do it. Um, you're just looking for the truth. I, I totally admire that. I thank you for it. Like, I kind of feel like I needed to do this and I think it's done. Oh, thanks, Jim. How could you not think uh, that this is just the most decent person to emerge from mm-hmm. this situation? Yep. I'm left with a yep. feeling. There was a feeling I think I had before when we were going to wrap without, um, you know, Jim's, mm-hmm. I was going to say testimony, but it's not too, without speaking to Jim, without his interview, I was going to wrap, but I wasn't left with this, you know, great feeling about maybe humanity in general mm-hmm. or the case. And then I talked to Jim and, and, and he comes forward and he doesn't, you know, he doesn't really want to. He's not looking for any limelight. Mm-hmm. This guy's had a rough go of it. He he said, I'd rather just stay quiet. Mm-hmm. But he's like, I feel like now I just need to say what happened and let other people make their decisions and do the right thing. Mm-hmm. Of all the people that we contacted, right? I contacted law enforcement, prosecutors. It was all their job to do that, right? Um, but nobody would speak to us. But the guy who has suffered um, personally and some serious negative physical and personal consequences. He's the one who emerges to me as kind of the, you know, like the everyday hero in this story. Yeah. He came forth and, you know, he said, it's possible that I was wrong. And I think that 
I just have to, I really have to commend Jim mm-hmm. Finn in this scenario. Yep. And I, I hope that other people will also um, realize that it's, you know, it's, it's possible to just not know and that's okay too. Yep. It's possible to have a change of heart, but I, uh, I do, I thank Jim Finn. I commend him and I think mm-hmm. he's definitely, you know, the best friend to emerge yes. from this situation. And it definitely illustrates independent of this case, it illustrates just how our system, you know, treats witnesses and the process people go through and, you know, the tactics used. I think Jim Finn illustrates that more. Like he he comes forward to give you his opinion on Melanie and what happened and his involvement. But yeah, I think in telling his story, you see how police and prosecution approach cases and you can make up your own mind whether mm-hmm. or not you think those tactics are okay or they're they're what's necessary. You can also see that there's a lot of bystanders who get caught in this mess who suffer. And is is that part fair? You know, I don't think so, but... Uh, On that note, we'd like to thank Jim and the other people, um, Jackie and Barbara, for participating. And we are done with the interviews, and we thank everyone for listening. And we're going to return next time with our final conclusions. Next time on Direct Appeal, on our final episode, we'll cover our conclusions and some of yours. And remember, it's not too late to call or email us with a tip. See you next time. Direct Appeal is hosted by Megan Sachs and Amy Schlossberg. Our producer is James Varga. The story arc was written by Megan Sachs. Music and underscore by Dessert Media. Recorded, mixed, and edited by Justin Kral at JC Studios. Special thanks to Alan Tuckerman, whose work was integral to this production. To view photos, evidence, and engage with other listeners, visit directappealpodcast.com and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. If you have a tip, you can submit through our website or by emailing tips at directappealpodcast.com. You can also help us out by leaving a five-star review on Apple iTunes or wherever you listen.